Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are WFMP Louisville, broadcasting to you from high atop the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM. We also live stream anywhere you're at in the world. Even if you're traveling, you can always pick us up at forwardradio.org. Check out our live stream there or check out the archives. And that's the place to go to if you hear something on Forward Radio that you want to share with somebody else. Uh, you can find podcast versions of our local programs all archived for you at forwardradio.org. You can also find information about how to become a part of our community radio station. It is radio for the people, by the people. And we would love to get you behind these microphones, behind the scenes, helping us out as a volunteer or donating. We rely entirely on your support to stay on the air. So if you got 20 bucks you could spare right now, you could sponsor this entire day's broadcast. Wouldn't that feel awesome? Just go to forwardradio.org and click donate today. Well, Sustainability Now is solutions-focused radio, and one important piece of solving our sustainability challenges, of course, is legislation and policy change. At all kinds of levels, we need policy change, but today we're going to focus on the Kentucky State Legislature and some of the uh, things going on in these in this short session that's taking place right now. I wanted to make sure to get on the air as quickly as possible. Uh, our friend from the Kentucky Resources Council, he's better known as Fitz, Tom Fitzgerald, and he spoke just last Tuesday evening, the February 21st, at United Crescent Hill Ministries with Ford Radio's proud community partner, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. They welcome Tom for an annual uh, update on the Kentucky legislature. And Tom is a senior staff attorney for KRC. Uh, and he shared what is happening in Frankfurt this legislative session and what we can do as citizen activists working to build a healthier commonwealth. Fitz was director of the Kentucky Resources Council from 84 until 2001. It's a nonprofit environmental advocacy organization providing free legal strategic and policy assistance to individuals, organizations, and communities concerning environmental quality, resource extraction, energy, and utility issues. Fitz has been an adjunct professor of energy and environmental law at the Brandeis School of Law at UofL since 19. 1986. You can learn more about our uh, proud community partner, uh, the Sierra Club, and register for future monthly programs like their March 21st program featuring David Wicks, former guest of this show of the Ohio River Way, talking about some exciting opportunities uh, to clean up and recreate upon the Ohio River uh, and celebrate the river instead of trash it. So you won't want to miss that coming up March 21st. You get more information at sierraclub.org slash Kentucky. But with no further ado, I'm going to step aside and bring you Tom Fitz Fitzgerald with this minor caveat. Forward Radio does not endorse any particular pieces of legislation. We are here to provide information and Tom Fitzgerald is going to share some ideas for you, uh, but they do not represent Forward Radio or our board of directors. But with no further ado, here he is, Fitz, speaking on February 21st. Good to be back here, particularly since today was one of those days where, you know, I dressed up in my suit, which of course in itself was a little bit of a feat because with, with COVID, I had been doing virtual hearings for a couple of years. I've done public service commission cases. You know, we did a couple of net metering cases and I got ready to, to go to Franklin Circuit Court about a month ago and I couldn't find my damn pants. <laughs> I thought these aren't really gotten to. So I had a complete suit and I got up and I went to committee meeting today and I got up and introduced myself to the program and Revenue Committee, which is a kind of a strange place for a solar development bill to be. But I got up and I did a little presentation about how bad this bill was and how it was actually going to rob landowners of their ability to require that all of the equipment be taken away 25 years from now when this is of absolutely no use to them, and how it 
purports to give local governments authority but really doesn't, and uh, how it is intentionally ambiguous. And I went through five or six other things about the bill that were problematic while saying that I appreciated the sponsor wanting to help landowners. This bill didn't do the job. And the sponsor's up there flanked by the Farm Bureau, which for some reason I will never understand, thinks this is a good bill for farmers. But, you know, since they're mostly an insurance company and marginally actually representing farmers, they, that might be why. This is NextEra, who is fairly aggressive when it comes to being a solar developer relative to the other ones. They have broken from the rest of the solar developers. NextEra owns ESI Energy LLC. ESI Energy LLC owns Seabri LLC and a number of other LLCs. They are all LLCs, which means they don't have any assets other than what it is they're building, which the day it stops operating becomes a liability. Yeah. So is this the same next era whose parent is Florida Power and Light? I believe it is. It's a fascinating company, yeah. actually. Yes. Yeah. So this is the same bill as last year. So I got, you know, done with my presentation and waited for any questions. Anybody had any questions? So I sat down and mysteriously, this guy who represents the Clark Coalition, which went absolutely nuts when there was a proposed solar facility over in Clark County, gets up and says that he likes this bill. And I'm feeling a little bit like Alice down the rabbit hole. And the sponsor gets back up and says, I really appreciate Fitz coming and expressing his views. We happen to think it's a good bill, and there's a motion on the bill, and it flies out at a 20 votes for, one vote against. So I couldn't even hold the rest of the Democrats. So I'm glad to be here, because that means I'm not there. And I'm <laughs> glad to be here in my typical attitude, which means that I could put the suit away for a day. We are 13 days into a 30-day legislative session. We have 17 of them left. Two of them are veto days that will come at the end of a 10-day session where they adjourn to allow the governor to consider vetoing bills so they can come back and embarrass him by overriding every one of his vetoes. They are going to keep meeting. There's going to be a bill, just to give you an example, there were more than 100 bills filed today alone in the House, and about 100 filed in the Senate. So today and tomorrow are the... Yeah, they are, well, ostensibly the last days to file bills. What that means is they have filed a bunch of bills. Some of you might think it is so great that the legislature is being so sensitive to gender neutrality in bills because they're amending all these statutes to make them gender neutral. What they're really doing is creating mules because they filed a bill and it says an act relating to everything. And then they send it into a committee. They pull up a committee sub and put something completely different into the bill, which nobody has any advance notice of. And then the bill goes out to the floor and gets voted on typically the same day. So this is the process we're starting now, which is we really don't know what's in the bills until we show up at committee, unless you're on the end. So in the time that it takes you to do a wordle, unless you're really good. You can figure out what bills are of concern to you and send a letter to the entire committee where that bill is parked. And that's how easy it is to do this. You get on the legislature.ky.gov website and you go to, I think KCC has one on their website. Sierra Club may have a link to both KCC and to our legislative updates. We do a somewhat different approach to tracking them. We provide fairly detailed explanations of why we're for and against things rather than listing just that we're for and against them. And we update them on a weekly basis, which I think cases it does as well. Our process is a little bit different and we are mostly doing defensive lobbying. We cover some bills that are not technically environmental or energy bills, but are general governance bills that affect people's ability to petition government. So you'll find those tracked as well. You say our, what do you mean? Uh, the Kentucky Resources Council, I'm sorry. I used to be a director for 37 years. I'm now a contract employee 
uh, ostensibly part-time and doing their lobbying for the through this session, after which time I, I don't know that I will be back doing that. So I may be over there just as a citizen, or I may decide to go over and volunteer for somebody's office. We'll see what happens. I have applied for a full-time job for the first time in my life because I kind of fell into the job I'm in, but we'll see what happens with that. The University of Louisville may decide that they don't want me as a professor, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But the schedule of uh, committee meetings is on the LRC's website. If you scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can see what's coming up the next day. You can see what bills are in what committee uh, by looking at our tracking sheet, and then you can find the committee members by clicking on, there's a, a banner across the top of the page that says, uh, well, you go to, to 2023 session, and then you click on the committee, uh, House Standing Committee, Senate Standing Committee, it gives you the committee members, you click on their names, it gives you their emails. The emails are typically firstname.lastname at lrc.ky.gov. So you can find your legislators' email addresses, and you can write them directly. You can group them together in an email and send a note to the entire committee. And they actually read these emails. They may respond, they may not respond, but they do pay attention to what communications they get from folks, particularly if they get five or six or 10 or 12 communications on a particular bill. What, what's your judgment of using the email versus the uh, LRC message line? Part of it's a generational thing with the legislators, but most of them have gotten to the point where they are reading emails or their secretary or assistants are reading the emails for them. But it is a certain set of generational thing. There's nothing wrong with calling the LRC message line and leading and asking the good folks there to leave a message for the entire committee to support or oppose a particular bill. I remember one time Albert Robinson, who was the senator from Laurel County, got up on the floor holding a stack of the phone messages that he'd gotten and said, and this was when we were opposing AT&T trying to deregulate, because we knew what they were going to do is exactly what happened, which is the urban areas get better service, the rural areas get better service. And that was, they didn't want to strain any more landlines, they didn't want to have the old uh, switch telephone network, they wanted everything to go to uh, wireless in rural areas and then to fiber in urban areas, because this is where the profit center is, right? So we opposed it for five sessions, and they finally most of the way through. But one of the times he was in front of the Senate, Robinson stands up, and I was working very closely with, with um, AARP uh, at the time, and the AARP folks in Laurel County had contacted his office. So he gets up and he says, this bill here, this at t bill, it's a good bill, and I'm voting against it. Because my constituents are misinformed, but they are against the bill. And I'm like, I don't care why you're voting against it. I'll take the win. But so it does make a difference. And, and you can do both. The toll-free message line, there's great folks there at the LRC. And you can actually call up and say, I'd like to leave the message for every member of the House. And they will write that down and send it to every message, a member of the House. Let me run through really quickly the bills that are of concern. There are some great bills. Uh, there's a constitutional amendment that would guarantee the right to a clean environment. There are bills directing the Energy and Environment Cabinet to adopt regulations regarding uh, the so-called forever chemicals PFAS. There are a number of great bills that will never see the light of day, but I'm not going to highlight them tonight because the likelihood that they would be heard is nil. And that's a that's a shame. Uh, but that is the nature of the legislative process right now. There is a Republican supermajority in both houses. And this is not the pre-1981 Republican Party, which worked with the Democrats very closely in Congress to pass all of the major legislation that we now take for granted, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. The last bipartisan effort in Congress was the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments that George Herbert Walker Bush signed into law. Since that time, there's been very little done in terms of a bipartisan fashion. And it's unfortunate that the environment and environmental quality has become a wedge issue uh, in Frankfurt the way that it has in Washington. But it is the unfortunate reality. Just to run down the greatest hits right now, 
House Bill 4 came out of the Appropriations and Revenue Committee. It's now in the hands of leadership. When a bill first gets introduced in today's legislature, it used to be it goes to the Committee on Committees, which is House leadership, majority, minority, or Senate leadership, and then it gets assigned to a committee. And it sits in that committee until it gets heard, and they sit there for the entire session. What the legislative leadership has been doing for the past two sessions is holding on to the bills in the Committee on Committees and not assigning them in the first place. So when a bill gets assigned to a committee, you have an indication that that bill is likely to get heard at some point. So the ones that I'm particularly concerned about are the ones that are in the hands of committees right now. And those are the ones I'll be focusing attention on. The ones that are in the committee on committees, you can write to House leadership and say, would you please hold that bill for the rest of the session? Because it is a bill that we think is is doing the right. House Bill 4 is, the, is actually worse than the House bill from the last session that was similarly pushed by Nexera and their lobbyist and their attorney, who was not a registered lobbyist, even though he was in front of the committee at least twice, which is a whole different story. But the bill weakens the existing practice. The citing board right now requires that all of these merchant plants, and there are 30 of them, that have sought licenses from the state citing board. Now, the citing board was created in 2002 because we realized back then when the Enrons of the world were coming to Kentucky to try to build gas plants, that we needed a mechanism to regulate non-utility, utility-scale power plants, gas plants, solar plants, wind plants, so-called clean coal plants, whatever the, the type of plant. These are plants that are generating electricity at wholesale rather than being a utility-owned plant. And they may be selling that electricity to a utility, but that contract would be subject to scrutiny uh, by the Public Service Commission unless it was a municipal utility because they're not regulated by the PSC. So these merchant plants, in the past couple of years, we had this uptick of interest in solar plants of a utility-scale siting in Kentucky. The reason for that is because land is fairly cheap. We've got the transmission lines that access both MISO and PJM, which is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, interstate connections, okay? So we've got the transmission systems and these plants want to come here, tie into the grid and get the credits for the electrons that they can sell to utilities in other states that have renewable mandates. Okay? So we've suddenly become a very popular place. And with that, we have a number of predictable problems. Some of the facilities have caused a significant amount of local resistance in no small part because local government has not engaged the public and in some cases has tried to hide what's going on in the public, which predictably results in a sense of enhanced risk and outrage associated with these types of projects. We at the council did a model ordinance to try to help create a framework for counties with planning and zoning to integrate solar into the communities in a way that was responsible, protective of farmland, protective of adjoining neighbors, and which required complete removal and decommissioning of these facilities at the end of their useful life. So they don't become the energy version of the big box. So what has happened is there was a push during the last session from Senator Paul Hornback, who's now retired. He was from Shelby County, a friend and a great human being to try to put some in place some rules regarding these solar plants. Because right now, the siting board is using its general authority to require decommissioning plans, to require bonds in case the uh, applicant or the, the company defaults on their obligation to decommission, and to set some rules of the road. What happened is Next Era pushed a bill in the House, and for reasons I will never understand, Farm Bureau and the County Association and the League of Cities have signed on to the bill, thinking that it somehow is to their benefit when it is actually to the developer's benefits. It intrudes into the leasing arrangements that a farmer may have with these companies. It allows the companies to leave a bunch of crap in the ground and on the ground when the useful life is done. It almost assures that the bonds that will be posted will be inadequate. 
because it says you have to post a surety bond, but then it says the calculation of that bond is done by an engineer. Not that engineers necessarily have any idea of how to calculate a bond. You want an actuary to do that, actually. But it's but the engineer is not a governmental employee, and the governmental agencies that are reviewing these applications are the ones who need to be saying that bond is adequate or it's not. So it delegates to some engineer the, the obligation to set the bond and then says you will reduce the bond to net present value. Well, anybody who knows anything about bonding, bonds don't get reduced to net present value. They have a face value. And you may get a discount on the bond depending on how long the bond is going to be in place. But basically what it does is it's going to assure these bonds will be grossly inadequate. It has other language in there that seeks to undo things that the siting board has already done. It seeks to move out a case where Seabury, which is owned by ESI, which is owned by NextEra, is down in Henderson County fighting over the fact that the siting board said, if you sell your facility or change control of this LLC to somebody else, you need to get our approval. And the company is pushing back because they don't want to get approval. So there is a battle royal going on right now. Okay. I lost the first round 20 to 1 with one pass. But I think we made clear today that this bill is a bad bill. Right? And we left no doubt that we believe this bill is not protective landowners. I have drafted a markup, which I've sent around to all the different parties. I sent it to the sponsor of the bill, and I'm sure it has now made its way back to the developer who's the kind of the shadow uh, character behind the bill. But we will be in a battle world. And what I need for those of you who are interested in assuring that we have fair rules that assure protection of landowners, I need you to send a note to House leadership saying, please recommit House Bill 4 until it is fixed so that it is protective of landowners. And if you want, you can specifically refer to the fact that the Resources Council has provided leadership, Speaker Osborne, with a copy of a markup that would be protected. So that's a high priority. And just breaking in to remind you that you are tuned in to Forward Radio 106.5 FM and forwardradio.org. And this is Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. We're bringing you this week an important Kentucky legislative update shared by Tom Fitzgerald of the Kentucky Resources Council on Tuesday evening, February 21st at United Crescent Hill Ministries. Thanks to our proud community partner, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. With no further ado, we take you back to February 21st with Tom Fitzgerald. The next bill is one that is really, I wouldn't spend any time worrying about, okay? because if it passes, it is blatantly unconstitutional. Every session, somebody decides they need to file a bill on administrative regulations. Okay? And that bill needs to say that the regulations are going to die if the committee determines that they're deficient. That's what it used to be in Kentucky years ago. If a handful of legislators calling themselves the Administrative Regulations Committee during the interim and the legislature went in session, decided that a bill, that a regulation should die because it was quote unquote deficient, it would die at the end of that meeting. Okay? What is deficient? Deficient is whatever a majority of the committee thinks is deficient. Okay? There's no hard and fast definition. What bills have been found deficient? Things that are a matter of policy, not a matter of the regulation being void. Okay? The legislative committees did not like Governor Bashir expanding the elder, expanding Medicare under the ACA. So when those regulations came through, they declared them to be deficient. He issued an order saying, notwithstanding your finding of deficiency, they're going to go into effect. And they went into effect and they stayed in effect because by the time the legislature met the next year, we had a bunch of people covered with Medicaid expansion and those people were really happy about it. But that's the sort of thing. When you have policy debates, less than 1% of the regulations that have been adopted in the past 20 years have ever been found deficient by a legislative committee. And, and if they're found deficient and they go into effect, there's judicial review, plus the legislature is back in the next nine months anyway. Is there a need for this bill? No. So we get there, we go to committee. Everybody's very cordial. This time, Representative Lewis instead of Representative Hale. Last time, it was Representative Hale with Representative Lewis. I get up and I say, this bill is blatant and constitutional. They say, thank you very much for your testimony. They vote the bill out anyway. It typically goes to the Senate where it dies, right? But if it doesn't die, then it's going to be challenged. They, they'll never see the light of day. 
So I wouldn't waste any time. It's House Bill 40. What it provides is that if a committee finds a regulation deemed deficient, it dies in 10 days unless the agency appeals to the attorney general and the attorney general finds that the regulation isn't deficient. So in one bill, we have violated three different ways we violated the separation of powers. We've delegated legislative powers to the attorney general, given the attorney general judicial powers that he doesn't have, and given the legislature executive branch powers. So it's like this trifecta of unconstitutionality. House Bill 74 and its Senate counterpart are a little more of concern. And it's House Bill 74, Representative Hart, and Senate Bill 127, which is Senator West. One of the, the House bills in the House state government was just sent there today. The Senate bill is in the new Senate Health Health Services Committee. Used to be there was a, there was a Health and Family Service that had been split out now. So it's, I think it's Health Services Committee, but it's a new the new Senate committee. Senator West is the sponsor there. What the bill would do is to say to local water districts, uh, you get to decide whether you want to participate in fluoridation of public water. Okay? Now, I realize that for some folks, fluoridation is a little bit controversial. But looking at the CDC, looking at World Health Organization, looking at all of the sources that I typically look to with respect to public health measures, properly done fluoridation of drinking waters is an extremely effective way of preventing dental problems and assisting dental hygiene. What this would do is to take that decision out of the hands of the Cabinet for Health and Family Services and give that to the governing bodies of water systems. I don't know that the governing body of the water systems have the expertise to make those kind of health decisions. They don't set the standards for drinking water. They apply those standards. They don't set the standards for bacteria, for uh, heavy metals, for uh, other pollutants, and they're not required to know that amount about toxicology of chemicals and human physiology and anatomy and biology. I don't know that they have the expertise to be making the decision on a district by district basis as to whether public drinking water supply should be fluoridated. And I don't know that they are sufficiently representative of the interests of all the families and the children that are served by those water districts to make that decision. But that's, that is an issue that is probably going to be debated. The Dental Association in Kentucky, I think, has taken and other public, and I think the Kentucky Pediatric Association have issued policy papers opposing the bill. So if you're interested in that bill, how state government, uh, and again, Nothing wrong when you write to a senator or a House member and you write to the committee where the bill is assigned to copy your own representative, your own senator, and to also copy senator House leadership, just to CC them on it so that they know that a bill that's in their chamber is of concern to a constituent in Kentucky. Okay, so that was 74. Yeah, uh, not too many of them left. So hang with me. House Bill 160 is actually a good bill that is moving. A couple of years ago, Westlake Vinyls, which discharges into the Tennessee River right down near Paducah, Marshall County, Westlake Vinyls has been having problems meeting a particular chemical discharge limits. So they got a bill introduced and ran the bill through the process. Uh, we were trying to negotiate an outcome that would address their issue without sacrificing the environment and would eliminate the need for the bill. But anyway, the bill went through and we told them the bill was problematic, that if implemented, it might result in removal of our delegated authority to issue permits under the Clean Water Act in Kentucky. And in fact, they finally realized that the bill they crammed through the process was problematic. So this is a cleanup bill. Okay? Nothing you need to do about it. The bill is going to go through cleanly and it uh, restores the status quo, essentially. And the reason that I like the bill, and this is not something I'm going to publish, is because in the first part of the bill, 
It backhandedly acknowledges and sanctions the fact that Kentucky banned mixing zones for bioaccumulative toxins back in 2004, right? Because it recognizes that that was done in a way that is positive, okay? So that's a good thing, right? That's not why they mean to do this bill, but it has that effect. So I talked to the state about that. They were originally opposed to Section 1. They say, oh, you're right, we're just going to be preparedness. So Westlake's bill is going to go through, we'll fix the problem that was created a couple of years ago. That if they listened, they could have avoided. Um, a bill that is up in the House Small Business and Technology Committee, which is chaired by Representative Pratt, is a bill that's sponsored by Representative Pratt. So it's pretty clear that the bill's going to come out of committee tomorrow. It's House Bill 264. And it's actually, in concept, it's not a bad idea. Right? It creates this new office, and that office will accept applications from somebody who says, I want to do something innovative. And here's the innovative thing I want to do, but there is a requirement from some agency that prevents me from trying this innovative thing. And then that will, office will send the application over to the agency that is responsible for that program. They'll look at it, and they'll make a determination. We think this that you should give them a year waiver so they can try their idea or you shouldn't because it's going to adversely affect public health or it's going to cause some other kind of harm. So in concept, the idea that you can give somebody a temporary waiver to allow them to try innovative things, that's not a bad idea, but it's pretty broad. Right? And we've written to the sponsor said, you know, Representative Pratt, you really need to to broaden out the authority of the other agency to say no, because it needs to cover that this innovative idea and what they're trying to waive is not going to adversely affect workers in the workplace, their safety, their health, not only consumer health and safety, but non-consumer health and safety and environmental quality. So I've written to him to say, would you mind putting some additional language in here? So I'll hopefully get that fixed during the process. But it's one to watch. Uh, it's Haspo 264. It's just, it's really broadly written and it needs to be narrowed a little bit so that Whatever's being waived is not going to adversely affect our ability to run federal programs that are delegated, and also that it's not going to harm the public or the environment in and out of the workplace. Uh, House Bill 222 is a reauthorization of the hazardous waste management fee. Right? Jim Gooch, who's uh, chair of the House Committee, is sponsoring that. This would be an extension to 2032. This is a fee on hazardous waste that are generated now. The money goes into the, the state super fund to clean up problems like the Blackleaf pesticide site, where runoff from uh, pesticides and barrel staves and other things that were done on that property out on St. Louis and 34th was getting into other people's property. So they actually paid to remove a couple of foot of soil from the backyards of, of people's houses. And to get that done, they used the state super fund. So if that's a good thing, the bill will go through. It has uh, general support. The industry supports it because otherwise... Somebody might be coming after them, wanting them to clean things up rather than using the fund. There is both in the House and Senate, and I don't think either of these will move, joint resolutions. A joint resolution is one that would pass both houses and have the force and effect of law. What this would do is it would have Kentucky petitioning to Congress to call for an Article 5 constitutional convention. Ostensibly, this would be to enact a balanced budget, but the constitutional scholars believe that you can't call a constitutional convention for just one purpose, that once you call it, it's Katie Bargador. So we have opposed that. I don't know in this climate that we really want to be opening the Constitution of the United States in a wholesale manner. So that's a House Joint Resolution 8 and Senate Joint Resolution 78. Those are pretty low priorities because I don't, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. Just a couple of bills more that I wanted to mention to you. House Joint Resolution 37 is of particular interest to Jefferson County because it would direct the Energy and Environment Cabinet, which is interesting because they don't regulate air quality for Jefferson County. It would direct the Energy Cabinet rather than Air Pollution Control District to adopt revisions to the state implementation plan that would remove reformulated gas 
from Jefferson County, Oldham County, and Bullock County. Okay. Now, I don't know at this point whether we still have RFG as a requirement because I had thought that we had already removed it as a summer requirement because we no longer needed it in order to attain the ozone standards during the summer. But I'll have to double check. In principle, I object to legislators dictating how the air pollution district achieves healthful air quality in Jefferson County. Okay. Because the last time we did this, the legislature decided they didn't like the vehicle testing program. Okay. So they shut it down without putting anything in its place. Right. So we sued over the program. We won the suit. We didn't order them to reinstate the program because at that point it would have cost millions of dollars to put the program back in place. But the result of that was that Cosmos Cement had to take further reductions in their emissions because the cars weren't doing their share. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a budget here, right? And when somebody else, somebody gets off and doesn't have to do anything, somebody else picks up the tab. And typically it's a major employer, large source that's going to pick up the tab. So I had committed to the industries that we would do our part in, in lieu of them. That's why we filed that suit, even though we thought it was inappropriate for the legislature to be trying to micromanage the strategies that this community developed in order to achieve cultural air quality. So that bill has been sent over to the House Natural Resources and Energy Committee Last couple of bills. Uh, that is House Joint Resolution 37. And uh, Representative Bauman, who I think is the new representative from Jefferson County, or parts of Jefferson County, is the sponsor. So as Jefferson County resident, you might want to find Representative Bauman on the LRC website and send a note if you're not a big fan of, of the General Assembly, which, to the best of my knowledge, has very little training in air modeling in air quality and in the cost-benefit analyses of what strategies are most effective to achieve healthful air quality. Senate Bill 26, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, further models the venue for actions that involve constitutionality of government orders and statutes and regulations. And that I'm not sure that that bill is going to go anywhere. It's in Senate Judiciary. I would not worry about that. It's kind of an arcane issue. It used to be all those actions went to Franklin Circuit Court. Some of the, the leadership in the House and Senate didn't like that because some of the measures that they had enacted were held to be unconstitutional. Franklin Circuit Court. So they changed the venue. So the venue now can be in Franklin Circuit Court or it can be where the plaintiff is. This would further muddle things by allowing people to ask for changes of venue willy-nilly so that you had no idea where the suit's going to be. And it can be very inconvenient if the suit gets assigned randomly to somewhere that's halfway across the convoy. I don't know why that bill was introduced. I intend to speak to the sponsor about that. The last two I wanted to talk about, one, it just needs a minor fix. The Kentucky Department of Highways, which is part of the Transportation Cabinet, regulates junkyards and recyclers, they call them. And these are folks that store cars, scrap goods, material, junkyards. And they require that they be set back from the road and that they be screened effectively so that you don't have to see the junkyard. That currently is a mandate that covers every county and state road. The, the transportation cabinet wants to narrow that to only cover highways so that there would no longer be a mandate for county roads and they wouldn't be in the business of having to permit junkyards at a local level. A couple of years ago, they put in language in my request that said if there's any restrictions that they put in place for a junkyard, that those would stay in place unless the local planning and zoning authorities lifted those restrictions. So that way, anything that was in place would stay in place. But a lot of communities don't realize that this is going to happen and that if a new junkyard starts up or somebody just starts junking stuff on their property and turns their house and their property into a junkyard because they have so much material there, that they may not have the tools in their local ordinances, whether it be a nuisance ordinance or it be planning and zoning. So I'm going to ask the sponsor to delay the effectiveness of the bill for a year so that we can talk to local communities and get those protections in place locally. I just wrote to him today, if he's not willing to consider that, Senator Jimmy Higdon is chair of the Transportation Committee. 
He's from a little bit south of here, covers some of Bullitt, Nelson, Marion counties, and he is a great guy. And I'm sure that we'll be able to get some changes made to that statute. The one that you might want to watch in the Senate is Senate Bill 4. Now, it will be heard in the Senate Natural Resources Committee, and I've been trying to work with the general counsel in the Senate to fix this bill. But what it does is it attempts to change the Public Service Commission process so that before any utility retires a coal-fired power plant, they would have to make a demonstration that retiring that plant would cause no increase in rates and that they would have to get a letter from the regional grid that retiring that plant would not adversely affect the reliability of the grid to deliver electricity or the resiliency, which is your ability to get back online when there's been a problem. Conceptually, I don't think it's a bad idea, right, before you retire any generating asset that you make sure that that you still have your customer's needs met. That's already a mandate, right? You have to provide adequate service. And adequate service is defined by a certain number of outages over a certain period of time. And the public service commission can find utilities that don't provide adequate service. The problem is the way that this is drafted, it tries to require things of the Public Service Commission in procedures. The Public Service Commission right now does not approve the retirement of coal-fired power plant. And when lg said they were going to retire Mill Creek 1, right? the, the Public Service Commission didn't approve that. What they approved was a certificate of need for a gas plant. And as part of that approval of the certificate of need, you're demonstrating the need because you're retiring this plant. So they indirectly sanctioned the retirement, but they didn't approve it. Right? Similarly, in an integrated resource plan, we just went through this process with LG&E, we just went through this process with East Kentucky Power. Every three years, the utility is supposed to project out over a certain period of years what their needs are going to be and how they're going to meet them, right? And what kind of portfolio of reductions, uh, energy efficiency, demand management, new sources, purchase of power, generation of power, how they're going to meet their customers' needs in the most efficient way. It's a planning process, right? Nobody approves the IRP. In fact, the utilities don't even take their own IRP seriously. And they, in fact, got chided by the Public Service Commission during this last round for not bothering to tell everybody while they were going through this planning process that they had already let bids for two new gas plants, which they've now filed a case to try to get approval of the bill. But we're out here in La La Land doing this integrated resource plan when, when the reality is, is they're going in a completely different direction, right? So the bill says that before the commission approves an IRP that includes retirement of a coal-fired plant or a fossil fuel plant, that they have to make certain findings. Well, the problem is the commission doesn't approve IRPs. Right? Nobody approves IRPs. The IRPs get filed, the staff makes recommendations for the next IRP, and that's it. So the way that it's written doesn't work. So there are some fundamentally sound ideas that are already part of Kentucky's revised statutes. And making it explicit that there be the ability to, to look at retirements is not necessarily a bad idea, not just retirements of coal, but retirements of any type of facility, because you want to make sure that that retirement is uh, is the most cost-effective way, taking in all the costs, regulatory costs, climate costs, all of the other costs, um, that it's the most efficient way going forward to meet the needs of the customers. Efficient, including environmental efficiency, including demand management, including renewable resources, the whole thing. So we have given language that is neutral language, much simpler language. We gave that to the Legislative Council for the Senate. And the Public Service Commission has also looked at our language, and they've given language, which is a little more 
involved than ours. So it's going to be interesting to see tomorrow because there will be a committee substitute, which none of us have seen, whether this bill is something that is workable. Now, the utilities, of course, are going nuts, right? Because they don't like anybody telling them anything about what they had to do or not do. So they have been scurrying around trying to figure out how to deal with this bill. And I'm not sure if the bill's going to get through the process. It is Senate Bill number four, which means it's the fourth priority for the Senate, which, you know, is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm a little disappointed the environment, despoiling the environment is really way down on the agenda for the House and the Senate for the past couple of sessions. We're down there below controlling women's bodies, shaming transgender kids, uh, micromanaging content in public schools, uh, providing tax breaks for the wealthy that we can't afford. And somewhere down there in the fifth or sixth category is despoiling the environment. And I'm like, you know, I'm like Avis, we try harder. You know, we should be up there in number one or two, but anyway, so I'm just teasing. So, so Senate Bill 4 is going to be heard tomorrow, and we'll know then what kind of a bill it looks like, right? Parenthetically, the outages that occurred with lg were not due to renewables. They were due to a frozen gas valve that prevented the gas pressure from being what it needed to be to meet the customer's needs. What saved the day was the fact that they were able to purchase wind power from PJM and wheel that power through the system in order to prevent a more significant power loss. And that's a, that's a story you're not going to hear very much about. But reliability issues are, are real issues, right? Coal piles freeze, gas valves freeze. So we need a resilient system with battery backup, with other ways that we can make sure that in this increasingly unstable climate that we are able to meet the peaks of the needs through these kind of, you know, the polar vortexes and the, and the summer heat waves and things. So they're legitimate issues. The bill was initially drafted by coal interests to try to gain the process in order to extend the life of coal-fired plants that are not otherwise economic to continue. So the bucket now is, but yes, they may not be economic, they may cost a lot more than, than doing renewables, but they're reliable. So that's this is the new push is to try to, to keep them alive uh, because they're reliable even though they're an economic. And so what we've said is there's lots of ways that you can meet reliability. You don't have to run a coal-fired plant because they are not always reliable. In fact, one of the problems that happened regionally is that a bunch of these plants were on outage. And so they weren't able to call on some of the traditional coal-fired and gas-fired plants. And that was as much a problem as anything else. It wasn't that we've mixed in a bunch of renewables and they're not reliable or they're intermittent sources. So it's a complex issue. This bill tries to get a somewhat simplistic solution to it. We've tried to give language that would make it actually a good tool for the Public Service Commission. We'll see what happens. But uh, that's the last of the bills right now. There were 100 bills dropped in today in the House alone, and about that many in the Senate. So by the end of the week, if you look at our legislative updates, there may be a lot of other bills that are there of concern. You know, we typically run one out of every 10 bills is one that has some sort of environmental or public governmental access concern. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes. In any of the committees, are they close enough to where they, they could stack the committee to get a favorable outcome? For, the past that's happened. for what kind of you know, favorable for industry or favorable for the public? Well, let's say it's a favorable for industry. I think there was some, uh, years ago there was that metering issue and right. they changed the number of people on the committee and got it passed. Yeah. But they failed to the Senate. But it, they are still stacking the committees? No, typically the, the membership of the committee is already determined at the beginning of the session. That was a little bit of a rare circumstance where they took some people off and put some other people on. They still couldn't get the bill out. Um, but that was a rare occurrence. The, the committees tend to be very uh, business friendly. And so it is always hard to finesse bills and to try to, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to improve bills and to make them harmless rather than to make them great. Occasionally, we get a positive bill through, for example, the hazardous waste assessment fund. We get that fee re-up 
for another eight years, that's a great thing. Because then we don't have to fight to put it in the budget every two years because it has a statutory authorization. But those are few and far between. And, you know, in this situation, what started out as a, a good idea to advance protection of landowners in the Senate solar bill last year was countered with a, a developer-friendly bill in the House. So it's usually an uphill battle in committees to try to address business spending bills. Yeah, the question was, what are the, the prospects of House Bill 66, which is Representative Wilner's bill that would regulate the disconnection of gas and electric service by public service commission utilities, including creating winter and summer temperature standards to limit or prohibit disconnection of service, and then would allow for reconnection based on partial payments and waiving certain fees for customers that have a certificate of need. The other bills and wireless that you're concerned about were taxation bills. Okay. There's uh, several bills that would create sales tax exemptions for feminine hygiene products and other personal care products. Those bills will, if they even get out of the committee on committee, will go to the House Appropriations and Revenue Committee. And it's highly unlikely that they will be heard unless the bill has a Republican co-sponsor. 66 is Representative Wilner's bill. And I think is Jason Lemus on there as well. So since it has a Republican co-sponsor, it may get a hearing. The utilities will likely push back on setting any statutory standards. The Public Service Commission is probably a more effective venue to try to put in place protections regarding disconnection and reconnection. And that's where we are pushing on an annual basis whenever rate cases come up. We're trying to make sure, for example, when lg e came in and wanted approval to start the advanced meters to replace the regular meters with advanced meters. They had done that several years ago. We opposed it, um, Metro Housing Coalition, which does affordable housing here in Louisville. We opposed it, and the Attorney General's office opposed it. The Attorney General representative then was Ken Chandler, who's now the PSE chair. And we were successful in getting the Public Service Commission to say, we're not going to allow you to do advanced meters because you're wanting them to be paid for now when the existing meters are perfectly good for another 15 years. What lg is now came back and did, and they got approved, and we didn't oppose, was that they're going to install the meters. Then they're going to determine if there actually is any net cost to customers, because supposedly these new meters are going to provide several savings. You can read them automatically, and, and they make it easier to respond to outages and to turn them back on and such. And so the question of whether they're going to be able to recover any costs is off into the future once they're fully deployed. But one of the things that we were able to put into the agreed order settling that case is that they would not use the advanced meters to do any cutoffs. And they wouldn't change their disconnection policies until they were back in front of the Public Service Commission because we didn't want them automatically cutting people off. And there was a concern that that was how these meters were going to be used. So so we were able to get that deferred. And depending on the commission, it shouldn't be depending on the commission. That's probably a more fertile place to try to get changes made. But since it is bipartisan, what you would have to do is write to the House Committee on Committees, the House leadership, and get them to send the bill to a committee for a hearing. Because right now it has not been sent to a committee, which means at this point, House leadership does not intend to have a hearing on And that is how the evening wrapped up back on Tuesday, February 21st, when Tom Fitzgerald was the guest of Forward Radio's proud community partner, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, at their monthly program uh, held at United Crescent Hill Ministries at 7 p.m. on uh, third Tuesdays. And you won't want to miss coming up. We've got some great monthly programs with the Sierra Club. And on March 21st, they're going to feature Dr. David Wicks of the Ohio River Way. You can learn more and register for that and all future events at sierraclub.org slash Kentucky. And uh, let's take a break, and we will be right back. After you get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened, I've got all kinds of ideas for how you can get engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned, my friends.
here on Sustainability Now on Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg. I hope, friends, you have your calendars out, your pencils sharpened, you're ready to take action for sustainability this week because there is a lot going on and we need you to get involved. Coming up on Tuesday, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the main library right next to us here across the alley on York Street, we're going to hear from Jermaine Fowler, a new author of the Humanity Archive. He's having his book launch at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, presented in partnership with Carmichael's Bookstore. You can join author Jermaine Fowler, host of the top-rated history podcast, The Humanity Archive, which you've heard right here on Forward Radio's Access Hour, for the launch of his new book of the same name. This sweeping survey of black history challenges dominant perspectives and goes outside the textbooks to reveal America's hidden history. You won't want to miss it, and you can register for it at lfpl.org slash authors, or just show up at the main library this Tuesday, February 28th at 7 p.m. You'll have to decide, though, because there's another great event happening on the 28th at 7 p.m. It's Stop the Shutoffs. Utility disconnections are a growing problem that impacts thousands of Kentuckians. Join us to learn more about the new Powerless in the United States report and legislation that can help. This online event is hosted by Kentuckians for Energy Democracy, a network of organizations working to ensure equitable and resilient utility systems that protect our health, environment, and climate. You can learn more about them at K the number 4ed.org k4ed.org and you can find the link to register for Tuesday's 7 p.m. conversation on their Facebook page just go to facebook.com and look for Kentuckians for Energy Democracy and that's online on Tuesday at 7 p.m. stop the shutoffs also, I uh, want to know, want you to remind you that the deadline to register for the Midwestern Ecology and Evolution Conference is on Tuesday, February 28th. The conference will be held at the very end of March. It's from March 31st to April 2nd at the University of Louisville this year in the Belknap Academic Building, the brand new Lead Gold Belknap Academic Building. It's a really lovely building if you haven't been in it. Anyway, the Midwestern Ecology and Evolution Conference is going to be meeting on the theme of crossing divides in 2023. UofL is excited to host. This annual regional conference is hosted by different Midwestern institution each year and is organized and directed entirely by graduate students. The conference is graduate and undergraduate student focused, providing a professional atmosphere for students of all levels to interact with and learn from their peers. Previous conferences have drawn on nearly 300 attendees from universities around the Midwest. Friday will feature field trips and beer with a scientist. Saturday and Sunday, this is uh, April 1st and 2nd, will feature a variety of work workshops and panels, posters and presentations, and plenary speakers. Everyone is welcome. Full details and registration can be found at louisville.edu slash sustainability. It is March 31st through April 2nd, but you need to register by this Tuesday, February 28th for the Midwestern Ecology and Evolution Conference. 
Now, coming up on Thursday, March 2nd, the University of Louisville is going to be hosting our annual seed starting workshop from 1230 to 2 p.m. at the Urban and Public Affairs Greenhouse, located behind Urban and Public Affairs, which is at 426 West Bloom Street. This is just northwest of the intersection of 4th and Cardinal. You can get a jump start on your food garden this year and join us in the greenhouse at the garden behind Urban and Public Affairs to learn about starting seeds to save money, get better results, and make the most of the growing season. Learn how and why to start seeds early with this hands-on workshop. Feel free to bring your own seeds to start and take home for your windowsill or help us start some seeds to be planted out in our campus gardens. This workshop will be led by horticulturalist Jennifer Palmer from the Jefferson County Extension Office. You can get more information at louisville.edu slash sustainability, but you don't need to register or anything you can just show up thursday march 2nd at 1230 p.m at urban and public affairs in the greenhouse 426 west bloom street now coming up march 3rd through 5th it's keep kentucky beautiful plogging across the bluegrass keep kentucky beautiful is a new collaborative of organizations and people across the state who are both experts and passionate about beautification sustainability and litter prevention brightside led the way in starting this collaborative in the summer of 22 with the purpose of organizing ourselves together over shared values and goals kentucky is our home and we're proud of its natural beauty thus we seek to combine our efforts to maintain the cleanliness of our state and educate Kentuckians about the importance of proper waste management and litter reduction. Keep Kentucky Beautiful is comprised of nonprofits, government agencies, and private sector partners from Louisville, Lexington, Bowling Green, Covington, Newport, and Frankfurt. In the spirit of collaboration, uh, they are organizing a weekend of action across the state coming up this weekend, encouraging community members to get involved in litter pickup. March 3rd through 5th will be their first plogging across the bluegrass event, where each organization of the collaborative uh, collaborative hosts volunteers for a combined run and litter pickup. So uh, there's a couple opportunities to participate right here in Louisville on Thursday, March 2nd at 6 p.m. There's going to be a cleanup event and sweep and sip kickoff at Against the Grain, 401 East Main Street. Runners, joggers, walkers, everyone is welcome. Join Brightside in this Keep Kentucky Beautiful plogging event, Thirsty Thursday edition at Against the Grain Brewery downtown, 401 East Main. Plogging is, of course, is a way for runners, joggers, and walkers alike to get their bodies moving and improve their community at the same time. Volunteers will be provided instructions and supplies, which they'll use to clean up litter from the surrounding areas. After the litter pickup, we'll come together for some individually crafted specials and community building. Brightside will provide bags, gloves, and a special Keep Kentucky Beautiful t-shirt to all who register in advance. Bring your friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, and more to take part in this clean and green initiative across the Commonwealth. Find the link to register at facebook.com slash brightside louisville if you have any questions you can direct them to elizabeth at 502-741-5783 but just coming out thursday march 2nd at 6 p.m at against the grain 401 east main street if that doesn't work or if you want to do some more plugging you're welcome on sunday march 5th at 2 p.m There'll be another plugging across the Bluegrass event at Old Louisville Brewery there at 625 West Magnolia Avenue. Brightside's going to be partnering with the Kentucky Guild of Brewers to host another plugging event at Old Louisville Brewery on Sunday starting at 2 p.m. Volunteers again will receive a limited edition Keep Kentucky Beautiful t-shirt and VIP pricing at the brewery. Check out Brightside's social media pages like facebook.com slash brightside louisville for more information and registration for the Sunday, March 5th, 2 p.m. event. 
Now, getting back to Saturday the 4th, there's several other really important things happening. Finally, it's the last in the Urban Agriculture Coalition's Winter Orchard Brigades taking place 9 a.m. to noon at Opportunity Corner, 636 South 18th Street. Uh, Urban Agriculture Coalition is a proud Ford Radio community partner, and they've been hosting these Winter Orchard Pruning events at community orchards all around the city. And boy, things are starting to bud out. It is really the last minute. This will be the last weekend of pruning of our community orchards. Uh, and you can learn more and sign up to volunteer at foodinneighborhoods.org slash grow. But whether you sign up or not, just coming out Saturday the 4th, 9 a.m. to noon at Opportunity Corner, 636 South 18th Street. All tools will be provided and instruction as well. Another great thing happening Saturday, and I haven't mentioned many of these, but every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. at different public libraries around the county. It's the Cafe Louie Meet Your Legislators event in partnership with the 2015 Bingham Fellows, Leadership Louisville Center, and the Friends of the Louisville Free Public Library. They gather uh, elected leaders from the local districts to come and talk to constituents from 9 to 10 a.m. in a casual atmosphere. Uh, This coming Saturday, March 4th at 9 a.m., they'll be at the main library at 301 York Street, as well as out at the Jefferson Town Library for our Jefferson Town listeners. They're at 10-635 Waterson Trail. Also coming up on uh, Saturday, March 4th at 9.30 a.m., it's it's the next in the Beginner Beekeeper Survival School. If you're interested in starting in beekeeping and wanting to learn the basics from local beekeepers, this is your event. Back for its second year, the Beginner Beekeeper Survival School packages the bare essentials you need to have a successful first year of beekeeping. This joint program includes Spencer Bullet, Kentuckiana, and Oldham Bee Clubs acting as rotating hosts. And you can just come to one of the four sessions. Uh, you can register for each individually. They're $10 each. And coming up this week, actually, this one's free this week. Uh, coming up on Saturday, March 4th, 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. with the Kentucky and a Beekeepers Association. They'll be out at the South Central Regional Library, 7300 Jefferson Boulevard, talking about products of the hive, an introduction to integrated pest management and diseases with Laura Augustine, former guest of this program. She's certified advanced beekeeper and past president of our local Local Kentucky and a Beekeepers Association. So that's this Saturday, 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. out at South Central Regional Library. The whole series wraps up the following Saturday, the 11th, 9 a.m. to 1 at the Oldham Extension Office uh, in LaGrange, Kentucky. Uh, and you can get more information and register for each of the events at eventcreate.com slash e slash beekeepers survival. Beekeeper survival. It also on Saturday, March 4th, there's a lot going on at 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It is a tree planting in Jeffersonville and Clarksville. You can join Louisville Gross for our first tree planting of 2023. I will be there, too, over on the sunny side of the river in Indiana. Trained citizen foresters will lead groups of volunteers to properly plant trees on residential properties. No experience is necessary. Everyone is welcome to come play in the dirt with us. Snacks, coffee, and water will be provided during the event. It is sponsored by the city of Jeffersonville, the town of Clarksville, the Jeffersonville Urban Enterprise Zone, Red Ball Recycling, and First Savings Bank. You can learn more and sign up to volunteer at tinyurl.com slash S-O-I-A. N trees 23 that's tinyurl.com slash s-o-i-n trees the number two and the number three and that's saturday march 4th 10 a.m to 2 p.m with registration starting at 9 30 a.m everybody meets up at lansden park in jeffersonville indiana that's located at 201 east 15th street at uh, and it all begins at 10 a.m on saturday 
Also, Saturday, March 4th at 1 p.m., it's at the next in the Before You Buy workshops put on by our friends over at the Louisville Climate Action Network. It's a free workshop covering everything you need to know about electric vehicles, including the latest tax credit information. And it's taking place on Saturday, March 4th at 1 p.m. out at the Mid-City Mall branch of the Louisville Free Public Library. Uh, no need to register, just show up. More information is available at louisvillecan.org. There's also another tree planting on Saturday afternoon. Oh, yeah, I'm going to try and double do, dip and do them both. And that's with Metro Parks and Recreation. Uh, they do these wonderful street tree plantings pretty much every other Saturday. Coming up this Saturday, March 4th, they'll be out at the corner of Finzer and Clay Street in beautiful Smoketown uh, at uh, 646 Finzer Street from 1 to 4 p.m. on Saturday. Louisville Metro Parks invites you to join for this fun afternoon of tree planting. We'll be planting about 50 trees to make Louisville's streets a little greener. Tools, gloves, and guidance will be provided by the Urban Forestry Team. No experience is necessary. Groups and families are welcome. If it does rain on Saturday, it will take place on Sunday from 1 to 4, but all signed up volunteers will be notified of any changes in advance, so you're encouraged to sign up today using the My Impact app. You can find the link and more information at bestparksever.com. And another thing happening on Saturday, March 4th. Sorry, it's all happening at once. So many great options. But from 10 a.m. to noon, out at the 7th Street Community Garden, Common Earth's Garden is doing a conservation workshop series presenting on the topic of intercropping, which is the process of growing two or more crops at the same time within the same space. And that workshop is taking place on Saturday, March 4th, 10 a.m. to noon, out at 7th Street Community Garden. That's 3221 South 7th Street. If you can't make it because they're doing all these other things this coming Saturday, you could also join them on the following Saturday, March 11th, 10 a.m. to noon, out at the Southside Community Garden, 7315 Southside Drive for the same workshop on intercropping, which is an awesome sustainability practice for your garden or farm. Uh, so in case of bad weather, the workshop will be inside at 2222 West Market Street. Uh, false signs on the door. Uh, knock and Amelia Balon will let you in. But looks like the weather's going to be good this Saturday. Anyway, March 4th, 10 a.m. to noon at the 7th Street Community Garden. Uh, also want to let you know this week that New Roots is accepting share orders for 2023. In 21, New Roots connected 715 families containing over 2,000 individuals with farm, fresh, organic, and chemical-free produce grown by their three beloved local produce farmers from Rootbound, Bar, and Valley Spirit Farms, plus seven different local orchards. Over 300 volunteers helped make this possible. The way they make fresh food available for all is through the Fresh Stop Markets, where farm fresh food uh, is gathered in food insecure neighborhoods. These markets pop up every two weeks during the growing season from June to November at churches, businesses, and community centers. Shareholders pay on an income-based sliding scale two weeks before each pickup date. And each bag contains nine varieties of fresh, local, mostly organic certified vegetables and fruit. Uh, it is as low as $6 a share if paying with SNAP, $12 for those of limited resources, $25 for higher income, and $40 for food justice shares. Everyone gets the same bag regardless of what they pay. Yeah, and it all begins soon in at the end of May in Old Louisville. The Fresh Stop Market will be at First Unitarian Church there at 809 South 4th Street on alternate Wednesdays from 4.30 to 6.30 starting on May 31st. So New Roots is now accepting share orders. You can download their new mobile app. It's called New Roots Fresh Stop Market. Or you could just email info at newroots.org or call them at 502-509-6770 for more information, newroots.org. 
That's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I want to thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.